0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dalal Mawad is an independent, award-winning Lebanese journalist based in Paris, France. She's working as a freelance uh, producer for CNN. She's been an AP reporter and her new book is All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation and uh, the Women Who Survived. Thank you for joining me, Dalal.
1: Thank you, Rick, for having me on the show.
0: This is a fascinating book in a since I felt like you worked like Philip Glass, just taking one thing idea and kind of repeating it and changing it slightly in that you, um, after the explosion in uh, Beirut, you interviewed women and asked them what happened, the survivors, and asked them what happened. But it's so much more than that book because you also... We've in there a history that you researched, wrote and created. How did the, that structure arrive? Because it's very beautifully done. Was it, Did you know you're going to write the history?
1: Uh, that's a very good question, Rick. No, initially I went there to um, document the explosion. I was there on that day and I was working for the AP. Um, I did a lot of stories, video and uh, print stories, and I got to know some of the victims and, and their families. And so the book initially started as um, you know something that would be focused on the Beirut explosion. And then when I started uh, sitting with these women, um, um, I mean, I had already decided I wanted it to be a women-led narrative because, in my opinion, uh, history is rarely written and told from the perspective of women, and this is why I chose, you know, to, to focus on, on a women's lens. But then, when I sat down with them, I realized that, you know, their stories encompass so many other themes, and they were survivors, not just of that today, of that explosion, but also of Lebanon's modern history of the recent and unprecedented collapse of of my country, the financial and economic collapse since 2019. And more than that, these women were survivors of endless cycles of violence. And the trauma uh, was so strong in most of you know the, the the women that I that I that I met, and they hadn't really uh, overcome their their trauma. They hadn't healed from uh, their wounds from the wounds of the past. So many of them would bring up uh, you know cycles of violence from the civil war, the Lebanese civil war between seventy five and nineteen ninety, or uh, wars with um, with Israel, and. Um, I thought, you know, Each of these women, yes, was a survivor of the Beirut explosion, but bringing them together actually tells a wider, a bigger picture. And that's the recent history of of Lebanon and how the Lebanese, not just the women, but the Lebanese are really doomed to go through violence again and again because of impunity. And maybe you'll get to that. That's the main theme of, of my book, impunity and the lack of justice.
0: You spoke that many of the women had suffered trauma before the explosion and had not recovered from the first trauma when they were subjected to the second trauma. I have to ask, have you recovered from the trauma of the explosion that you experienced?
1: I don't think the Lebanese ever recover from their traumas. That includes me because, as as you mentioned, there's one trauma that piles up on top of another before you have time to heal. Uh, These women um, have survived the civil war. They've survived domestic violence in some cases. They've survived political assassinations, bouts of instability, an economic crisis, and then the Beirut explosion. Really it's, it's too much it's too much to to bear and personally i i would say i'm lucky because on that day i was not physically hurt and and my house was was not damaged but um you know friends of mine have have been have been killed I know a lot of uh, people who uh, who died or were injured on on that day it's a traumatic experience for every Lebanese whether you were in Beirut or not uh, that day and it's a burden that you carry on I talk about the survivor's guilt why did I survive when others have, have died why was I lucky when others were not just the day before my daughter and my mother were next to the Beirut port at the exact same time, uh, you know, the explosion happened the the next day. So it was sheer luck. And a lot of us Lebanese felt this way. Um, I I would say I've processed what happened maybe more than others. And this book has helped me somehow, but I don't think we'll ever recover, mostly because there has been no truth and justice. Uh, We keep saying we will not forgive and we will not forget, especially as long as there's no justice.
0: This was the largest non nuclear explosion ever caused by humans on Earth. Talk about how big this was and, and the import of the size just because it extended the effect over so far, so many people, and was so severe for the people who were there closer.
1: That's true. It is one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. The destruction really went beyond Beirut, the city itself. I remember driving that morning from outside of Beirut and seeing damage outside of the capital, and I just couldn't believe it. We're talking about twenty kilometers away from 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 the city, and there was you know broken glass and, and damaged buildings. Almost half of the city was destroyed on on that day. We're talking about. You know, the, the, this is the, the physical uh, damage. But I think the human toll is is the worst. More than 220 people uh, were killed, about 6,000 injured, some of them sustaining lifetime um, injuries. And, and I think this is something you would hear from a lot of Lebanese. Even if you were not physically wounded, something is broken in you. Uh, Broken uh, forever. Um, The explosion was caused by a consignment of ammonium nitrate. It's a highly explosive fertilizer that was stored in the port of Beirut for uh, more than six years. And really, this is criminal negligence because there's enough evidence that shows that Lebanese officials knew how dangerous this was and did not take appropriate action to move it, to safely store it, or to get rid of it. and yeah, it was. I describe very vividly the the, the destruction, and, and and it's it's in the book. Um, but basically, you know, a lot of buildings in Beirut turned into. Just like naked columns there was nothing left but concrete uh, windows were shattered and, and you know a lot of people were killed because of the glass uh, that blew up on, on on that day cars were hammered there was debris and wreckage all over it was very hard to get around uh, the city and it was complete chaos in the first hours uh, a lot of hospitals were destroyed and i focus a lot on that i interviewed doctors and and nurses you know hospitals are places safe spaces where you're supposed to go to get treated and they turned into hell really on on, on that day
0: one of the uh, things about this book is The narratives. Talk about doing the interviews with these women and then recreating the narratives that you create, the stories. This is a collection of stories that itself, it's like one of those pictures of food where food forms a human figure. This is a collection of stories, very painful stories, that built up a portrait of a very painful nation, and this is a, a nation that once was proud, was modern, was revered for its democratic institutions and its ability—you know—the the beautiful landscape. This was a, a beautiful place.
1: True, and I think these women, in many ways, reflect the state of Lebanon today. They're they're hurting. Uh, you know their lives have been shattered. Today, Lebanon is a failed state. It's a collapsed nation. Um, And not much is being done to save it by the political establishment. I sat down with these women for very long hours. Some of them I, you know, went to see more than once. It was it was very difficult to be in my seat because some of them were speaking for the first time about their stories uh, about the Beirut explosion, but also about other stories, as you will see in. In, in the book. A lot of them, um, you know, hadn't healed, have not even healed to this day. So they're still processing. There was, there were a lot of tears and, and crying uh, involved. And I describe this, in my, my interaction and in the psychological state of these women when they're being interviewed is very much part of of their stories but I try to be very truthful to their narratives uh, so I use a mix of reportage and what I call oral history and so a lot of um, their stories are chunks from their narrations as is that I have not really censored or changed much even if a woman makes a mistake or repeats a word or I've left it as is because I think it's um, it, it, it represents really what, what this woman's story is and what she's trying to to convey, so I tried um, for these women to own their narratives as much as possible, and this is why I use um, oral history uh, somehow.
0: You know the power of these narratives; that the, it, it's somewhat terrifying, and, and I would hesitate to to mention many of the e- explicit uh, terrors that you report. Just. Uh, Talk about dealing with the horror uh, of what happened there. Because on a personal level, and these stories are all on a very personal level, these people witnessed horrors that are almost unimaginable. And for you as a journalist, you are re-witnessing them as these people tell the stories. They are right there in the room with you. How do you keep from being a a sponge and yet you want to be a sponge to absorb these stories to inform your greater narrative?
1: So interviewing these women was not easy, as I said, being in my seat. Um, This story specifically, the Beirut Blast story, was one of the hardest, if not the hardest assignment I've covered as a journalist, because it felt so personal. It was very hard to distance myself from that story because it affected me, it affected my family, it it affected the people that I love. And so sitting with these women, I really couldn't just sit and, you know, listen and then go on just, you know, to tell their stories and and life is normal. I took with me these stories. I'm still connected to many of these women. I cried in in the interviews. I tried to help some of them beyond, you know, telling their uh, their stories. Um, it had a, a psychological toll on me, although I would like to think that as a journalist I've been trained and by now I know how to cope uh, because I've covered conflict before, displacement and refugees. Um, and yet, as I mentioned in the book, in the aftermath of the research, um, you know, I suffered from insomnia. It, it really got to me because, as you said, there was too much horror uh, in these stories.
0: At the same time that you're hearing these stories, you're also experiencing within, and you write about this, the history of, of Lebanon as a place where foreign and sectarian uh, com- groups have always collided and always tried to uh, control, establish control of this small, beautiful area that was once kind of one place. Talk about the development of these groups and, and I think what <clears throat> what's really interesting is that you as a writer you channel the terror and, and the trauma of the women's stories back into your retelling of the story of Lebanon itself which is itself a parable for modern society so that as as I read this, I thought this could happen anywhere. This could happen here in America, and it sort of is.
1: Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is going through its own democracy crisis, unfortunately, and the country is polarized. But I would like to think that there's still accountability in America, whereas that's not the case in Lebanon because in Lebanon, uh, impunity reigns, and the judiciary is not independent, and so. Um, you know politicians are rarely held accountable and it's uh, one of the reasons if not the main reason why history keeps repeating itself in in lebanon and i mentioned this a lot in, in the book i i focus on impunity and and justice uh when it comes to the politics of lebanon it's it's very complicated and uh, there are two historical chapters in in the book to give a foreign audience very briefly uh, an idea about lebanon's modern history and Um, It would be, you know, I I always said it would be unfair to summarize it in 13 pages, unfortunately. Um, But but I had to, and that was a tough task. Um, What you have to know is that Lebanon today is, uh, you know, divided into religious sects. And um, this is reflected in politics, too. We have a confessional political system. Um, and the poly- me,
0: what do yeah? you mean by confessional? I thought that was an interesting so, word.
1: Yeah, confessions as in different religious groups and and, and sects um so you have 18 official sects and um then these religious groups are represented in in parliament and uh the different you know uh, positions um in in the Lebanese state and, and institutions so to give you uh, an example parliament uh, has 128 seats they're divided among the different christian groups so catholics maronites orthodox uh, Muslims, sunni shia druze uh, etc et um the the seats are allocated based on uh, religion the there's also uh, a non-written um entente uh, that you know the president is maronite the prime minister is sunni and the speaker is is shia um and unfortunately you know and i say this in the book it might sound as you know this is a fair power sharing system because you know everyone is is represented but it ended up um you know turning the Lebanese state into a very dysfunctional uh, state uh, and i talk about this i describe lebanon as a dysfunctional uh, compromise and it enabled a lot of foreign interference also in lebanese affairs at the behest and at the request of the lebanese and this is what i describe since you know the 16th century to to this day there was always regional and international interference and so lebanon was never really independent and sovereign um in addition today the political establishment is mostly made uh at least, you know, the the heads of these religious communities politically are former warlords. They're warlords who led the civil war between 75 and 1990. And when the war ended, just um, voted on a law to give amnesty to themselves, you know, without being held accountable. There's one guy who only went uh, to prison, and that's for political uh, reasons, not that he's innocent, but the rest should go to prison as well. Uh, So just to give you an idea. And after the explosion, um, there were parliamentary elections and there's a chapter um, about that where there was a lot of hope that you know, the Lebanese would elect new blood, new politicians. And they did, but it wasn't enough. There were about uh, 10 to 13 new MPs that were um, elected. And this was the result of an uprising that started in 2019 before the explosion. I, I don't want to like... Uh, confuse our our listeners, but there's a very simple chapter where where I explained that. And unfortunately, that wasn't enough, because today it feels like the political elite keeps uh, reproducing itself. And uh, this political establishment, although Lebanon has collapsed and it's going through uh, one of the worst economic crises um, since the 19th century, uh, as per the World Bank, these politicians are not doing anything. To save uh, Lebanon, they're just wasting time. They've saved—they've saved themselves, if I can say. Um, but you know, there were no economic uh, reforms. Nothing was was done to uh, give people back their money. This is what I also mentioned. A lot of women in the book lost their savings. All of us as Lebanese were victims of a Ponzi scheme, um, where you know one day we woke up and all of our deposits and savings were gone. And this was engineered by the political establishment the central bank governor who's allied and affiliated to them and the commercial banks who also have politicians as shareholders and you know on their boards of directors etc um but in a nutshell this is a political class that survived because of impunity and lack of accountability and it's really mind-boggling for a foreigner to see that some of these politicians have been there for decades decades. I think our speaker is the longest, you know, serving speaker of parliament in the world. Um, and he was reelected um, after these recent elections two years ago. So nothing really changes.
0: You know, this also comes out in the investigation into the explosion. And there essentially has been none. You did some work. And The work you did exposed some stuff that just seems kind of mind-boggling and terrifying because it looks as if uh, Vladimir Putin is involved storing these uh, explosives. And these explosives were stored in a manner that almost seems as if they were meant to explode. And that's extremely uh, scary especially with regards to the results, which your women tell us so powerfully and so beautifully.
1: Yes, I think there's a case of criminal negligence here, not just corruption and and mismanagement, because as I mentioned earlier, many of Uh, you know, the Lebanese officials, whether port officials, customs officials, the Lebanese army, the president, ministers, they all knew about uh, this, these explosive, uh, you know, the explosive material. And they took no action whatsoever to safely store it, to remove it, to warn people about its dangers. Um, Just to give you an example, there was an exchange, a communication between two ministries and the you know, the judiciary where they lied about the danger of the ammonium nitrate in order to be able to offload uh, the cargo and store it in in the Beirut port. So this ammonium nitrate, and and I go into details in in the book, in the introduction, came through a ship in 2013. We still don't know to this this day who owns the ship, who owns this cargo. And it was offloaded eventually um, and stored in the Beirut port in early 2014. And then from 2014 to 2020, it sat there in this warehouse that, that blew up. And according to forensic experts, it was stored with other explosive materials such as fireworks, acid, uh, tires, um, etc. And there was a fire rake that preceded the explosion. Uh, about uh, 20 minutes before the explosion. And we also still don't know four years on what caused this fire. So many questions remain unanswered. Why was it sore there? What caused the fire? Who owned the ammonium nitrate? Uh, there's an FBI report that was leaked to the media that says only 500 tons blew, out, blew up out of the 2,750 that were there. Okay, why wasn't, where was the rest? Why didn't it blow up? Was it being sold or shipped somewhere? Um, You know, uh, this was a period where there was uh, still, there is a a civil uh, conflict in in, in Syria and the Syrian uh, regime was making barrel bombs using ammonium nitrate. Was it being sold or shipped there? We we don't know. There are a lot of questions, um, you know, was, was it there on purpose and then targeted on purpose so that it blows up? We don't know. There are so many theories. But what we need to understand is that the women in this book and all of the families and, and the victims, they want answers. They're never going to find peace. Uh, without these answers, they need the truth and they need justice to be able to to move on. And these are two things that are very evasive in Lebanon that you rarely find. It's not the first crime, you know. There was a war. There are a lot of assassinations, and there are always no answers.
0: As you as you say, it's a culture of impunity. But I'd like to talk too just about some of the specific narratives uh let's start with uh Laura al Uh she talks says that she still gets nauseous in thinking about this event. Uh and, and you know describe, you know, sitting in the room with with Laura and, and hearing her narrative.
1: Um is... um one of the firefighters from the Beirut Brigade uh, that, you know, were, were there on, on, on the spot on, on that day. Her colleague, uh, Sahar, was the only woman um, to go to the port when the fire was reported and who was killed with the rest of the firefighters team. Um, there's one thing that I remember about Lore is how uneasy it was for her to sit with me and how traumatized she was and had clearly not processed what happened to her and her colleagues a year on because I interviewed her one year after the explosion. Um, I felt so uncomfortable as well. And I was so worried about triggering her traumas because this was a person who looked so vulnerable and what clearly, clearly not thought through and processed what what happened uh, to her and she felt very guilty because she was supposed to be on duty and she uh swapped shifts with sahar the other firefighter who ended up uh you know being killed on on that day so it was a very painful story to hear
0: you write too and this uh laura's story turns on Uh, The story of the fire that you mentioned, there there was a fire earlier. You you and everybody else in Beirut saw the the clouds of smoke coming out and were wondering what was going on. And a fire brigade was sent to investigate this, to put out the fire, without being told that they were essentially walking into a bomb. And Mm. they were all killed. Talk about the... Other women who, you know, you interviewed me, who were, you know, affected by this fire and the people who went there.
1: So the book, the first part of the book starts with a very vivid description of what happened through the women's stories. And the, the story that comes after Lore is... One of the women who lost her husband on that day and was one of in one of the main beirut hospitals and saw that fire uh from the beginning as well as a doctor in that same hospital who also saw that fire from the beginning and she describes you know how the color of the fire changed um with with time uh, because you know different things were were burning um and she Uh, describes how she saw, you know, mass wave of birds uh, flying out of uh, the, uh, the port. But all of these people who saw the fire, they you know, were curiously looking, they were filming with their phones and that's how we ended up getting a lot of the videos that we've seen of the explosion because people were so curious and did not know that it was so dangerous to stand by a window and film uh, the fire. You know, eventually uh, while they're filming the fire, the twin blasts happen and, um, you know, you, you see that through, through, phone, through the phone's uh, footage. It's um, it's mind-blowing. If if you look, look up, there are a lot of videos uh, online it's uh they're painful for the Lebanese to to watch but it gives you an idea about you know how how huge um, the explosion was it really looks like a nuclear um explosion with this huge mushroom billowing above the, the Beirut uh, uh sky but the fire lasted for quite some time and this is what the women say about 20 minutes at least and everyone was just watching and filming and you know the um the firefighters brigade told me also, and I say this in the book, that um, it took a while for them to get calls about the fire, for the fire to get reported. They they went there as soon as they got the calls, but it had been on for, for a while. And it's insane because, you know, you would expect port officials, um, you know, who knew what was in that warehouse uh to do something they could have used the firefighters instead of sending them to their death to evacuate people from their homes to tell people to open their doors and windows so they wouldn't blow up a lot of uh, officials knew how dangerous this was and nothing was done absolutely nothing whereas it could have saved a lot of lives you had like a window of about 40 minutes i think um you know since the onset of, of the fire and until the second explosion because they were twin blasts
0: i think it, it the scenes set and the stories told by the women who are in the hospitals are particularly upsetting because for them there was they were in a place that was supposed to save people and you talk about people going from one hospital to another to another because all of the hospitals are full and these are people who are seriously injured and terrifyingly so um how does the do the stories of these women um who you know are are not in a position of power in lebanese society the they these stories carry more power, in a sense, than any man ever wielded, in terms of like trying to do something.
1: Yeah, um, you're right, and I think you know in the first part of of the book, I, I the women's stories really focus on that stamina and perseverance to get out. Of you know whatever situation they were, and to to seek help despite the chaos, despite you know the destruction of the hospitals. And I think one great example, and I if if people buy the book, uh, they they should read that chapter. Is a chapter about the nurse Pamela, who carried three premature babies she saved from an incubator and walked with these babies for an hour and a half until she reached safety and put them in one incubator, all three of them. She reached a hospital outside of Beirut. Because to give you an idea, people have to drive all the way to the north or to the south uh, or to the northeast of Lebanon to find a hospital. That's how overwhelmed the public health sector and the private hospitals were on, on, on that day. Because remember uh, in 2020 Lebanon was already reeling under the burden of the economic crisis so these hospitals were already suffering from the financial collapse of, of Lebanon and just imagine you know with the Beirut blast in what state they were and all these injured and, and dead people um it was very chaotic and uh you feel that when you read uh these stories you but then these women would not stop. Uh, they would go on and on and on, as as I said, until they, they found someone to help them.
0: The strength displayed by the women is really amazing. And it's these are like, really, as you indicated, when you talk about uh, Stephanie, the nurse who carried the three babies, uh, these were physical feats. And this is a book I th- I think is really interesting in the sense of the physicality. Uh, of the experience this is uh uh, something that affected both the body but also the mind as well and and also your mind as a reporter uh
1: yeah of course As, as i said you know it's um it's physical it's psychological these are stories that you know I think they have a toll and and a burden also on the reader, Rick. A lot of people who've read the book, they told me it was very heavy. It was very heavy to read. They had to stop. They had to stop maybe for a day or two. They had to take breaks because even if you've never been to Lebanon and you don't know much about the country or the Beirut blast um, and you don't know the women in, in the book, it's it will affect you. And it's the way it's affected me and it's affected every person who's who's read it. But this is the purpose, I think, because this is it's really portraying the reality of how painful things were on that day and in the aftermath for the Lebanese. And they still are to, to this day. So, yeah, it's, it's 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 a burden, I would say.
0: Now you write, one powerful and dominant group at the port is the armed Shia militant group Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran and is considered to be stronger than Lebanon's national army, controlling decisions of war and peace and interfering in regional proxy wars, including the one in neighboring Syria. Talk about the kind of what's interesting to me is my perception of these groups. has always been as you know kind of like war groups but you you, your description of of their effect in lebanon is one of corruption and crime so that they seem more like a a kind of a mafia than, than, than a group dedicated to war
1: yeah, that's the case not just of Hezbollah. Uh, I think Hezbollah um, stands out because um, you know they are acting as an armed group. Uh, they are considered uh, by uh, some Lebanese as a resistance uh, group. Uh, they have weapons uh, that are um, you know it's it's a huge arsenal probably the largest in, in in the world for a non-military, uh, for a non-state actor, sorry. Um, so this is what other political parties in Lebanon uh, don't have. Um, and in, when it comes to the Beirut port itself, um, although Hezbollah has denied this, we know that the port is has a strategic and milita- is a military asset for, uh, for them, uh, for imports and exports of, of, of weapons. Uh, But I would say the mafia is is a a very accurate description of all the political establishment in in Lebanon, not just Hezbollah, the rest of the political parties as as well. Uh, This is how they they behave. It's corruption. It's, uh, you know, criminal. um, And uh, it's it's not just one mafia, it's different mafias, you know, and uh, they kind of. work together as well and they protect um, each other um, and I think the the port of Beirut itself is a perfect example it's a microcosm of the corruption of, of this mafia they share the spoils of the port and the revenues of the port among themselves you know through tax evasion you know customs duties evasion. Uh, appointing officials who are affiliated uh, to, to them. So just to give you an example, on the day of the explosion, the head of the Beirut port was affiliated to the former prime minister, uh, Saad Hariri. The head of customs was affiliated to the former Lebanese uh, president, etc., etc. Um, And so... Um, Yeah, uh, this is how they run most institutions, uh, state institutions. They've jeopardized state institutions. To serve their interests, uh, they've built a, a patronage uh, uh, network using state institutions. So they're stronger than the state, um, and they use the state's, you know, to to feed off from its uh, revenues. And in the case of Hezbollah, Hezbollah is also uh, is definitely stronger than the state because it's because of its weapons and because, unfortunately, it holds the decision of war and peace in in, in Lebanon. Let's say things bluntly. Uh, we see today that Hezbollah is fighting uh, Israel in the south of, of Lebanon, um, and this is a decision that Hezbollah and only Hezbollah took. And there's always a risk of dragging the whole country into this war, whether the, the Lebanese want it or not. They don't decide. The government is, is just, you know, in um, abiding to by whatever um, uh, they want and it's always been the case un- unfortunately and this is why Lebanon is not a sovereign state.
0: One of the takeaways of this book is that Lebanon is a place where there's no national movement forward the only movement within is the various parties protecting themselves and one another And this is the Um, culture of impunity you talk about.
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't say there's no national movement. I think after the 2019 uprising, we've seen somehow the birth of alternative political parties, um, people who want change, who want to get rid of these uh, politicians, but they have a very difficult task ahead of them and things have been quite complicated. There are new political parties who have emerged, but I wouldn't say they're dominant or, you know, they uh, they hold power. Unfortunately, these traditional political parties are still uh, the dominant uh, force. Um, and yeah, I think impunity mostly uh, comes from the fact that these politicians are in power and they hold the judiciary um, hostage. And I mentioned this. So in Lebanon, the judiciary is not independent. As I've mentioned, these politicians interfere in the appointment of judges and their promotion. And um, the perfect example is the probe into the into the Beirut explosion. So the judge who was appointed to lead the investigation today can't do his work, basically. Um, When he tried to do his work and to call some ministers and MPs for questioning because he's accused them of criminal negligence and of being responsible of what happened, uh, they used their political immunity not to show up, they've issued a series of lawsuits against that judge to obstruct his, his work. And um, a year ago, um, the public prosecutor of Lebanon, so that's the highest prosecutor, uh, goes ahead and files a a lawsuit against that judge. And he releases all of the suspects that were detained um, since uh, August 2020, you know, who uh, were linked to the, the explosion although they're not very uh, senior. And so today the uh, national investigation is going nowhere. Um, This judge is unable to do his work, and this is why the families of the victims are nowhere near knowing the truth and getting any kind of justice.
0: Your book is a hearty dose of the truth, both for the readers and for uh, Lebanon itself. Uh, The narratives are so powerful uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Karine Matar and her, you know, uh, experience. Thousands flocked to medical centers outside in Beirut. Many hospitals turned them down either because they were destroyed or overcrowded. This was a... Uh, a scene that you know compounded tragedy on tragedy. The hospitals were destroyed, and they were no longer able to serve the people outside who were injured.
1: Yeah, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, these hospitals were already suffering from the economic crisis that hit Lebanon in 2019. So they were suffering from shortages of supply. Doctors had already started uh, immigrating. Um, things were not um, going well. And then let's not forget the COVID-19 pandemic and the burden that had on on hospitals who were becoming ill-equipped and uh, short on on money. And then the Beirut blast happens and the explosion destroys Beirut's main hospitals. Uh, So these hospitals could no longer properly function and welcome uh, the, the injured. And so uh, Lebanese did not know where to go anymore. They were driving for hours and hours, as I said, went all the way to the north or to the south or to the northeast to find functioning hospitals who could welcome them. And so for some people like Kareen, she had to drive for hours until she found a hospital that could take care of her injuries, And then she ended up getting surgery without anesthesia because there were none without power. The doctor was using the the phone to see what he was doing. Imagine, because power cuts were becoming more and more recurrent in Lebanon because of fuel shortage. I mean, I explained this in in the book in further details, Um, but yeah hospitals were disaster zones really and all of the doctors and nurses i've interviewed speak of what a hell it was to be in a hospital on that day and the horrible scenes they had to see they had to turn down people because they could no longer take care of them they had to you know shut their doors and tell them go we, we can't have you in um or you know operating without enough supplies um uh, the you know Karen's surgery, for example, did not go very well, and to this day she can't properly move her hand uh, that was injured it's um it was it was catastrophic the situation of the hospitals, and it's why I decided to interview so many doctors and nurses in the book.
0: One theme in this book is that something that kept Lebanon down before the blast was the were the constant power outages and the, these power outages uh are almost a, a villain in this book in that they make it everything harder before during and after the explosion
1: yeah i mean i just mentioned the power outage and how the doctor was using the phone to uh to operate on on kareen and i did it on purpose to keep mentioning the power uh, outages um, in every single story because all of the women brought them up and I did not want to remove that, although it can become redundant and repetitive at some point. But it shows you uh, what a toll this has on Lebanon and the Lebanese daily lives to this day. The the power cuts go back to the civil war, um, but they were not fixed in the post-war um, era. And the economic crisis that hit Lebanon in 2019 just made things uh, more complicated. So you would have maybe only two hours of of power per day, uh, in some places, uh, none because of fuel shortages. Um, And the the shortage was due to the depreciation of the Lebanese uh, pound and the inability to import uh, fuel. I won't go into um, into details. But A lot of Lebanese today have to pay two power bills because the state electricity, well, it gives you one or two hours of power. That's it. You have to pay for a private generator. And that's a whole mafia because the private generator owners are making a lot of money. And fuel became so expensive. So there are some women in the book who tell you their bill per month is like $500 for just, you know, a private generator for the fuel, which is huge in a a country, uh, you know, where 80% of people are under the poverty line, Um, And, you know, they barely make $100 a month. So just imagine. Um, And so a lot of people had to compromise. And uh, we went through a period, at least when I was reporting there, where people had no food in their fridges because... They just there was no power or uh, food poisoning was was so common because food would get spoiled Um, and businesses were affected. Everything was affected. Um, And after the explosion, things just got worse because also Electricité du Liban, you know, the state power supplier, its building was completely um, destroyed. Um, But unfortunately, Rick, to this day, the power shortage is has not been resolved, just like other issues.
0: One of the things we see in this book is that the women you interview are often suffering from grief but it's not according to some neat five-step plan. It's a grief that's overwhelming and uh, runs at a low but persistent level throughout their lives.
1: Well, yeah, it's, again, it's the absence of healing that I've mentioned at, at the beginning. Um, you know, grief has different stages, right? Um, it's But some of these women, they haven't even grieved because they have not found justice. And I say this, it's it's very hard to grieve for your loved ones before you... Have found out what really happened to them, and before someone is held accountable for their unfair death. Um, so, uh, grief is, is 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 a common theme uh, in in the book, and I think these women are grieving the loss of their loved ones on the explosion, but also the loss of their sense of safety. Uh, you know, grieving Lebanon that is no more, Beirut, which has changed a lot, their lives, which have changed uh, forever. I myself went through a period where I was grieving because although I did not lose, you know, someone very close to me, I lost my country. My life changed forever. I moved to Paris because of the Beirut explosion. Um, and there's a Lebanon that I once knew that no longer exists, unfortunately
0: you write about <clears throat> you are talking earlier about when lebanese the lebanese economy collapsed and essentially the banks stole all the money from the people who had it deposited there and there are a couple of really powerful stories of uh men who would go and try to rob a bank that was that had once held their savings just to get the money they were owed back
1: yeah um, some people attempted doing that. I would I wouldn't call it robbing a bank because you're basically uh, asking for your own money. Um, but there were very rare cases, and um, in in general, all of us lost our savings and deposits. And the sad story is because of uh, impunity and the way things are going. I am very highly skeptical about getting anything back. Uh, I lost my savings, so did my husband, so did my family. Uh, It's it's very sad. Um, To this day, if you go to Lebanon, you will see that banks um, are shielded with these huge uh, boards made of steel or wood. Because people started attacking banks. They were so desperate. They didn't know what, what else to do. And banks are culprits, for sure. Uh, they're behind the Ponzi scheme, which, which led to this financial collapse. But so is the central bank, So are the political parties. So all of them uh, together. And all of these commercial banks are technically uh, bankrupt, but they never announced their bankruptcy, which is also mind-boggling. And I mentioned this in... In, in the book, um and you know they're they're still there. Uh, I don't really know what is it that that they do, but people lost trust in banks, and so Lebanon today is very much a cash economy at large.
0: You tell one story that I thought found particularly powerful of an old woman who runs a store and barely able to keep it open. She's there like sixteen, seventeen hours a day. Tell us about that woman in that interview. Uh,
1: yeah, I think you're referring to Siham. Uh, this is the woman whose generator bill is $500 and she can barely make ends meet. She's She must be now 65. When I interviewed her, she was about 63. Siham and I speak on a daily basis because um, unfortunately I help her with medicine. She has no one, she has no children. She represents the case of the elderly in Lebanon who have no pension, um, who if they don't have any children they have literally no support. And her husband is, is sick. And so she works, she owns this small deli shop in Beirut. She works from, dusk till dawn long hours she was injured in the explosion her grocery shop was destroyed she rebuilt it through private donations and you know with the help of, of friends and Siham just like other Lebanese lost all of her savings and deposits in the bank so she couldn't even go to the bank to get her own money to rebuild the store that blew up on, on that day it's it's really um, incredible that a lot of people on after the explosion were begging the banks for their money, the money that the political establishment stole from them um, to be able to rebuild windows and doors that were blown up by the very same political establishment who neglected the ammonium and you know let this uh happen. It's it's very sad. Siham is very helpless. Um and she's very vulnerable, and there are a lot of elderly like her in Lebanon today.
0: This book is really, sense in a sense, a testament to the power of these individual women who are able to manifest, you know, work together. They've given up on all the structures of society that they used to be able to rely upon. Um, Talk about... uh, the, you know, collecting these stories, which are all stories of, you know, in a sense, people who find themselves without any supporting the structure in society and how these women are recreating society, one experience, one communication at a time. Yeah, that's
1: true. I think they represent the wider Lebanese society who have to fend for themselves, unfortunately, and had to do that uh, during and after the explosion. Uh, it's it's incredible, just to give you an example, some of these women were uh, cleaning rubble, looking for loved ones, uh, rebuilding, because the state authorities were doing nothing. Um, and some of them, despite everything they've lost, are today uh, finding ways to uh, give, give back to, to others, despite everything Lebanon has taken from them. So there's a woman in the book that has lost her daughter in the explosion and has started an initiative to help uh, families in need. Uh, another woman who also lost her daughter started an educational fund uh, to help kids in schools because, you know, of the financial crisis, you know, the, 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 there's a problem in the educational system. People can't afford to go to school. The dropouts are increasing, et cetera. Uh, so it's, uh, they represent, you know, the Lebanese society, which has found ways to, you know, support itself um, without that state because the state is it's absent; it's it's not there.
0: You mentioned that the best way to destroy a society is to destroy the means of education.
1: Yes, and this is my biggest worry for Lebanon today. I think there's a loss to generation uh, because of the crisis, because of the you know the dire situation in public schools um that you know the future is at stake here and it's being jeopardized because of the crisis in in the educational sector um and i'm very worried i'm very worried about this um unfortunately i think you know uh this this generation this young generation has been through so much and is not getting uh enough enough education
0: this book is a monument to the power of education and also to the power of the individual women like yourself who are still remaining, still care, still love the country of Lebanon.
1: Thank you very much. Uh means a lot. And it is, it is really, um, I take a lot of strength from these women that I've met and that I've written um, about, despite all the hardship that they've gone through uh you know they hold a lot of strength and stamina and perseverance um and i do hope for better days for them and their and their loved ones and i uh, just want to mention that if you purchase the book my proceeds of, from the book will go to the most vulnerable women in this book whom i'm already helping and who really need support and you can also reach out to me there's a, a page at the end of the book if you want to help the specific uh, women some people have have done that you can reach out to me as well
0: the new book by Dalal Mawad is All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation, and The Women Who Survive. excellent title. Thank you for joining me, Dalal.
1: Thank you, Rick, again for having me.